We do not like ambiguities. Uh, we like to know uh, in concrete terms what's right and what's wrong. We do not like complexities. We like to think in very simple ways and we want our answers. We want our rules and our values to be as simple as possible. Uh, and certainly, uh, at least after we reach a certain point in life, it's very, very difficult for us to uh, grapple with different sorts of change uh, and to recognize that not only do societies change, but in many ways they must change. This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu hc. Welcome to the Howenstein Center's online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. Since my previous webcast last Thursday, the United States, including West Michigan, has been racked by justifiable outrage and profound unrest. Americans are horrified by the Memorial Day murder of a black man, George Floyd, by a white policeman at the corner of East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. And now we're seeing the gathering storm clouds that have been building over our nation during the past few months burst open. That storm has been energized by continuing injustices against people who are not white, intense social division, the impeachment of the 45th president, and then the coronavirus pandemic, the enforced social distancing and isolation, widespread psychological depression and the anxiety that has ensued, an historically unprecedented government-induced economic depression, and most recently the peaceful protests and anarchic riots in response to the murder of George Floyd. How might all these storms be changing our nation? And what kind of response does the current dire situation require of citizens in general and leaders in particular? It seems as if we are in the vortex of the perfect storm. Are we on the cusp of a revolution? Certainly I can remember no time like the present since 1968. Well, whatever happens, I believe there is a growing sense that we will not be the same nation on the other side of our current time of troubles. If ever there were a time when citizens and leaders needed wisdom, it is today. Our guide this afternoon is Brian Bowdle. Brian is an associate professor who has been teaching in the psychology department at GBSU since 2005. He specializes in cognitive psychology, but he's also interested in the moral, political, evolutionary, and cultural elements that make up the way we think. And he will share some insights into the tensions that we're experiencing today, and we'll explore the tensions between common ground and contested ground in the US. My conversation with Brian will go about 50 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. Feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Well, thanks so much, Brian, for being my guest on today's Howenstein Center webcast. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me, Gleaves. Well, we're going to talk about current events in a moment, but first, let's set the table. You're interested in how our educational system used to teach character education and wisdom without apology. It wasn't controversial, say, a century ago. Why is the idea of teaching wisdom so controversial today? <laughs> well, part of the thing is that, that there is no single widely accepted definition of wisdom out there. Um, I, I think that there are a few aspects of wisdom that most people could agree upon that should be part of the definition, but there's a lot of non-overlap in terms of what people would desire. 
from uh, a wisdom education or curriculum, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, training wise leaders, a wise populace, what have you. Um, there is that part. Uh, there's also the part that it's not exactly clear if we all decided uh, that we wanted to be teaching wisdom, um, how we would go about that in terms of, uh, would we have standalone courses? We, would we try to incorporate it across uh, all of our different areas of teaching? How would we assess it? A lot of people believe that assessment is really necessary to uh, keep the educational system accountable. Uh, and I don't think that we really have a very good way of assessing, you know, certainly not with a uh, standardized multiple choice test, uh, what would be a, a wise person from an unwise person versus somebody of just merely average everyday wisdom. Um, so educationally, uh, there are, I think, a, a, just a number of hurdles we need to jump over to really make this a, uh, a sellable product across the board, uh, uh, very, very appealing to educators, administrators, students, and parents uh, in pretty much every corner of our society. I still, at this point, at this point in particular, I think, uh, I don't think that this means that we should just decide to kick the can down the road. How do you define wisdom? <laughs> you know, um, wisdom has, I think, a number of different elements to it. Uh, it's interesting because obviously uh, philosophers and theologians have been talking about and debating wisdom uh, for, uh, for millennia. Um, and probably some of the most profound insights about what it means to lead a wise life uh, come from outside of my field, that being psychology. <clears throat> but over the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, uh, this particular topic, which probably seemed way too challenging or at least unscientific uh, to study in a scientific manner, it, it's been gaining some attention, gaining some inroads uh, with research and theory. Um, I would say at this point, and keep in mind, uh, wisdom is not something that I personally have been researching. Uh, it's not something I actually spent a whole lot of time thinking about uh, on a regular basis uh, uh, before maybe just a couple of months ago. Um, but uh, a social psychologist by the name of uh, Ivan Grossman has probably done, I think, some of the best work studying at least the cognitive aspects of what it means to be a wise person. And if memory serves, he uh, basically said there are four cognitive pillars to wisdom. Uh, the first one is intellectual humility. Um, that is basically knowing what are the limits of your own knowledge? What are the limits of your own reasoning abilities? And basically being willing to accept the possibility, ambiguity, at least, that you might be wrong. And, uh, and certainly to own up to it if it winds change. up that that's the and case. These are all, I can tell you, they're very, very ones. difficult for humans. So we have intellectual We do not like ambiguity. Uh, we like to know uh, in concrete terms what's right and what's wrong. We do not like complexities. We like to think in very simple ways, and we want our answers. We want our rules and our values to be as simple as possible. Uh, and certainly, uh, at least after we reach a certain point in life, it's very, very difficult for us to uh, grapple with different sorts of change uh, and to recognize that not only do societies change, but in many ways they must change. And therefore, what may be wise right now might not be wise 25 years from now and possibly wasn't a wise thing to do 100 years ago. 
Um, third would be the ability, we're talking about these four pillars. Third would be the ability to actually take on different viewpoints, different perspectives, to basically step outside of your own ideology, your own belief system, and entertain in a serious way, uh, not necessarily an uncritical way, but a serious way, other perspectives on a particular problem. And then the fourth and final pillar, uh, according to uh, uh, Grossman, would be the ability to actually blend these different perspectives. So in other words, you may consider your own ideology, you may then consider an issue from the opposite ideology, if there's just two sides, and oftentimes there's more than that. Our temptation, even if we're, we've gotten that far, which is difficult enough, is then to try to figure out, okay, I've looked at them both, which side is white, right, which side is wrong, hopefully mine is right, uh, but actually maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. It's gonna require some compromise, some synthesis, or maybe there's a third alternative that's not in any way a synthesis that actually uh, winds up being far superior to these other two. Um, so those are things that, uh, uh, that uh, Grossman has emphasized. I would have to agree with all of that. Again, this is all very appealing to me as a cognitive psychologist, somebody who studies the uh, uh, basic, uh, uh, basically what goes into attention, perception, memory, judgment, and reasoning, language, things like that. This isn't all there is to wisdom. Uh, I would say that empathy, if I had to add to those four pillars, I would say that empathy, which involves uh, emotional intelligence, would also have to be a part of this. And I would also add to the mix one sixth thing, and I'm not saying this is a comprehensive picture, but that would be uh, uh, moral and ethical reasoning. Um, I think that that's essential too. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that uh, although I don't think you can truly be a wise person without taking ethics and morals into consideration. I think that you can think ethically or morally without necessarily being wise. Um, looking at uh, the protests, counter-protests, reactions, riots, everything going on right now in our community and many other communities around the country, I have no doubt that the people on various sides as they're reacting, especially those who are facing off uh, in the streets on different sides of the lines, both sets of individuals, in my opinion, are driven by moral concerns. They have their own moral codes. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that either or both sides are always behaving in the wisest of manners. So wisdom does require morality, but morality does not necessarily mean that you're a wise person. Are you seeing examples of wisdom and discourse today in response to some of the things that have been going on that have troubled our country and really made us introspective about who we are as Americans. Um, there, as you pointed out in, in your uh, introduction, there are so many things that are happening in our country right now. Um, had you asked me even five days ago, I probably would have picked a completely different example and 10 days ago, a different example again. Um, my attention like yours and so many other people's has really been captured over the last three or four days um, by the events, uh, not just around the country and how they started out um, with uh, George Floyd and, and what I would call his murder, um, but also obviously with what's been going on in our community, um, which is only a, a small tempest in this larger teapot, but obviously this is affecting us more directly in different ways, both positive and negative. Um, 
I might want to hold off on pointing out examples of what I would call lack of wisdom right now, because I'd rather not start by focusing on too many negatives. Um, I would say that if we step uh, just outside of our community, not too far away and look at Flint, Michigan, um, something very remarkable happened there over the weekend. And, and keep in mind, uh, thinking about the different major cities in Michigan, uh, part of me wants to say of all places Flint, uh, because this is a community uh, as much uh, so, if not more so than most in Michigan, um, that has seen its challenges, it's seen fear and resentment and anger building up, a lot of it due to different racial issues. Um, and if there was any city that was really ripe for the protest to boil over into uh, some very negative confrontations and to violence and things like that, Flint would have been near the top of my list if you'd asked me just a few days ago. What we saw, and, and many viewers have probably seen some of the clips of this too, if they haven't, I encourage you to go online and find them because I find them, them inspiring. Um, a protest started over the weekend. Uh, it was a very large one. The protesters uh, had been marching and talking for about two hours before they decided to converge upon the police department. The police officers got word that they were coming, put on their riot gear, which is standard training, um, and decided to form a line, a defensive line outside of the police department, not knowing what to expect. When the protesters arrived, those in the front lines began sitting down or kneeling down to indicate their peaceful intentions, that they weren't about to attack, they weren't about to invade. Um, given the level of anger, um, this in and of itself, I thought showed great restraint and great wisdom. And then something unexpected happened on the other side. After a few sparks of hope with fist bumps and nods and even a couple of smiles, one of the sheriffs took off his helmet, put down his baton, later on said this was against all basic training, and approached the crowd and basically said, we are here for you, we are here with you. We condemn the actions that we saw with George Floyd those police officers are not us. We love you, we are here to serve. And then basically said, what can we do for you right now? And the crowd began chanting, walk with us. At this point, the sheriff says, then we will walk. I'm paraphrasing, but says, let's walk. Let's turn this from a protest into a parade. And he and several of the other officers marched for over a mile with the protesters to their end point and joined with them in their end demonstration. And there was still anger. And there were a lot of negative emotions still there. But it was mixed in a way that we rarely see with hope and joy and compassion. And it was a powerful mix, a paradoxical but powerful mix of emotions. And it showed remarkable restraint and I would say genuine wisdom on all sides. It's a beautiful example, Brian. I agree. I was so struck. I, I had a lump in my throat as I watched that on the news unfold and watched the sheriff said, you know, let's, uh, let's turn this, you know, from a, a protest to a parade that we, we all love this community. We love you as neighbors. Let's try to figure this out. I mean, I, I was really quite taken by that as well. And I, yeah, now did that fix all the problems? 
It, it didn't fix all the problems, obviously. Oh, Flint, like so many other communities, has so much more work to do. But unless something's happened in the last hour or two that I'm completely unaware of, over the next two days where the protests continued in Flint, there has been no violence. There's been no looting. There's been no rioting. The, uh, the city hall, the police department have been reaching out and in contact with Black Lives Matter. They have decided to set up special panels where the sides can talk. They have uh, proposed uh, new policies to be put in place. And this will take time. And there's still a tremendous amount of healing to be done and a tremendous amount of thinking. And I'm sure there will be missteps. We will see them. Um, but I really think that right now the dynamics there are quite positive. And a lot of the reason for it, I think, is because of what we saw over just those two or three minutes with that exchange. That set the stage for so much of this. It was remarkable, a remarkable moment in this. And I hope that we can continue, despite whatever the tumult is going forward, I hope we can continue to go back to those moments when you saw an unusual solidarity, because we all are in this together. That's the whole premise of our Common Ground Initiative at the Hallenstein Center. We may vehemently disagree with each other, but so long as we do not resort to violence and we're willing to engage each other and take the challenging things, I, I say to my students, you know, when people have an experience that they feel strongly about, that usually comes from a wound, real pain, something that they have experienced earlier in life. And it's not just intellectual or, you know, it's not just an abstraction from a textbook. They've experienced something and, and we're obligated to understand that and the ambiguity that results once you agree to enter that conversation, what we were talking about earlier in the Pillars of Wisdom. So, yeah. oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> no, no, please. Yeah, I, th this is, it's such an important insight because too often when we engage in debates, and they may even start off as civil debates, but when we start arguing with one another, and these arguments I think oftentimes are truly worth having, um, when people begin to base their arguments simply on what they've been told to think by others, um, whether it's their favorite newscaster, it's uh, 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 their parents or what have you, when it's not actually based in lived experiences, um, you know, or a combination of lived experiences and, and actual factual knowledge, this is where things begin to really go off the rails. To the extent that we can open ourselves up to someone whose ideology, their attitudes, their opinions seem not just so different from ours, but even maybe potentially dangerous to us. But then we ask them, uh, with genuine curiosity, and this takes work, you know, why do you, why do you believe that? What has led you to this point? And then they begin to share actual experiences that we've never had for whatever reasons that have led them to believe this. Um, then we can start working off of our shared sense of humanity to really try to talk about these things. It's hard to do, but it is very doable. Um, as you and I both know, it just, we need to set the stage just right. So I'm curious, since you are a teacher, you, you have been in the classroom at Grand Valley for a number of years. Help us visualize what you do in the classroom to take these very <laughs> difficult issues, these populations that are divided, how in the classroom do you bring people together? How do you set the table, so to speak, so that people can begin to listen? Take us through 
how you prepare? What do they read? What do you say to them? What do they say back to you? Um, it really depends on the nature of the class. I've been fortunate um, over the last few years to uh, be teaching a, a couple of upper level seminar courses uh, at GVSU that uh, tend to be rather small. Um, the one that most immediately comes to mind uh, is a course that is called Controversial Issues in Psychology. Um, and allow me to set the sta stage for this, uh, if that's okay with you. You bet. One of the things that you will find in many, many courses at GVSU, and this has become really um, uh, kind of standard at, at most colleges and universities. If you look at the syllabi, you'll see that one of the course objectives is to teach critical thinking to students. <clears throat> and I think that's a really valuable thing, but I don't think that critical thinking is always understood properly. Um, because if you look at most syllabi, what you'll see is the phrase critical thinking skills. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've heard that phrase many times before yourself, Cleves. Yes. Yes. Um, there's a real problem with teaching critical thinking as a set of finite and perhaps abstract skills that you can uh, teach to students that they will internalize and then apply to pretty much uh, uh, any aspect of life. First of all, very few, very few of the components of what I think are critical thinking are actually skills. Let's just take one example. Uh, if there's anything that sounds like this maybe is a skill, this is just a rule that you could teach students and they'll be able to apply it anywhere. It would be, uh, uh, oh, I, I teach my students to look at both sides of every issue. That is important. We talked about that a little bit earlier. You need to be able to do that. But simply having students turn, okay, look at both sides of an issue into almost a mantra doesn't guarantee that they're actually gonna be able to effectively do that. Um, so for instance, um, you may have students who say, well, I've already done that. I know both sides of the issue. And they may be very, very much mistaken about what those sides actually are. Um, to take a very contentious debate, for instance, and I really don't wanna get into this in, in any depth whatsoever, but let's take the debate over abortion between uh, pro-life movement, pro-choice movement. Uh, I've encountered many people on both sides who say basically, um, you know, I understand my side and I know the other side as well. And what they have is a very, very shallow and, and often twisted, very distorted caricature of the other side. So I've heard, for instance, uh, people on the pro-life side say, well, what the pro-choice people are all about really is just, you know, hedonistic sexuality where abortion is treated as nothing more than just another form of contraception. I've heard people on the pro-choice side say of pro-life as well, what the pro-life movement is really driven by is a war against women and the attempt to control women's bodies. Um, I think that for most people on either side of the debate, um, these would be insulting caricatures. So sometimes we may say, oh, I'm looking at both sides, but we misjudge what each side is. Sometimes also we may not know what the other side is. We know our side, at least we think we do reasonably well but we may not know what the other side is. If it's a political debate, for instance, let's say that I'm telling a liberal, well, you need to look at the conservative side. They might not even know where to find it. And it's like, well, if I wanna really figure out what conservatives think about this issue, perhaps I should tune in Fox News. Um, I would say, well, that's probably not the best way to find a really intelligent 
nuanced and historically accurate version of real conservative thought. Rather than Fox News, maybe you should read some issues of the National Review instead. This boils down to basic information literacy. So critical thinking is not really about teaching skills. It, it's, uh, it requires rather three other things. Um, number one, once again, possession of relevant background knowledge, knowing the facts, knowing the most recent research, if that's applicable, knowing what the most dominant theories are, really familiarizing yourself with that. Number two uh, would be adopting the right attitude in the first place, which I like to tell my students, uh, it, it simultaneously involves being open-minded, but at the same time skeptical, not cynical, but skeptical. There's a real difference between these things. Um, so there's a mindset involved in this. And then finally, and, and this of course is where the cognitive psychology comes into play at my own area of expertise, is understanding how the human mind actually processes information in the first place. Um, because actually there are a number of cognitive impediments, real mental roadblocks that are true obstacles to critical thinking across the board. Uh, they seem to be hardwired into us for various reasons and they are universal. They are in fact, uh, uh, for better or worse, just part of human nature. And I could spend an entire really an entire course just talking about all of the cognitive roadblocks to critical thinking, but I just want to focus maybe very briefly on three, just as examples, uh, if you don't mind. So one big impediment to critical thinking is automatic processing. Perhaps some of your uh, viewers, uh, members of the Howenstein Center are familiar with some of Daniel Kahneman's work on system one versus system two thinking, fast versus slow cognition, et cetera, et cetera. Automatic processing, that system one processing, uh, which we are very likely to fall prey to, especially if we're working under time constraints, this of course can be a real obstacle to uh, uh, critical thinking across the board. In some cases, it's because automatic processing involves very rapid uh, emotional responses. Um, even though, as I mentioned earlier, emotion, I think, is ultimately necessary for wise reasoning, especially when it comes to being empathetic. Um, when we're reaching, for instance, uh, uh, making moral judgments, emotions can really get in the way of things. Uh, about three years ago, uh, I was driving to campus uh, from where I live, campus being Allendale, and I saw a car ahead of me, and it had one bumper sticker on it, and the bumper sticker uh, if memory serves, said, uh, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Um, there were no other bumper stickers. I have no idea whether maybe this was a liberal trying to stick it to conservatives or vice versa. Um, but I actually think that's, that's kind of a wise saying, and it's something we lose sight of. Um, that just because you're offended, just because you're outraged even, doesn't necessarily mean that you are correct and the other person is incorrect. Uh, but that sort of reaction would be an example of automatic processing. Um, Can I interrupt you right here? Yes, Did please. You, let me ask you, Brian, do you find that a lot of people use outrage as a substitute for thinking? Oh, sure. Um, Even whether or not, I, you know, I don't necessarily think they're knowingly do that, but I do think that there is a tendency that, that when we feel, um, upset, angered, disgusted, what have you, any negative emotion, we tend to believe that the reason we feel that way is because, because something bad, something wrong 
has happened to us or we've been exposed to something bad or something wrong. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, that really is the case, but not always. Um, I'm not saying, again, that we should try to ignore our emotions. Uh, it's important to pay attention to them. Um, but, uh, and I have heard some people say, you know what? Um, anger and outrage can be uh, honed into uh, very effective tools for change. And there may indeed be some truth to that. But I think that more often than not, that's probably not the case. But don't you find that there are forums, whether they're sponsored by the media, uh, some, sometimes they're in the university, where, where we allow outrage to stand instead of a thoughtful response to something. And we, re, we react to the outrage instead of a thoughtful response. I, I think there's a lot of that, even in institutions that are supposed to be somewhat insulated from that. Or am I off No, you're, you're not wrong at all. Uh, and, and I've seen it, uh, you know, even being used uh, as, as a technique to rally students in courses that by and large are about subjects that, that really shouldn't be all that uh, emotional in the first place. Um, I've certainly seen it at campus events. Uh, as you and I both know, as many of us know, the media is very, very good at this. Uh, if, you wanted, if you really want to generate uh, uh, expanded viewership, if you want to um, uh, get lots of clicks and likes, if you want to uh, uh, therefore attract more advertisers, I mean, there is a real financial incentive uh, in terms of the media provoking outrage. And this is a, an equal opportunity uh, uh, offender. I, this is true on both the left and the right in terms of media outlets. Uh, it really is unfortunate. I think that the fact that we have actually put some profit incentive behind generating outrage is one of the things that's really making things worse right now because we're seeing uh, more and more examples of competitive outrage. Well, you've generated this much, we can do it even more. Uh, and when we get into a competitive outrage cycle, uh, we are really in trouble. Yeah, we have business models now in social media that are based on clickbait. That's, That's the right. business model. And it's really destructive to public discourse. That's right. That's right. Well, but go through the three impediments. Okay. And yeah. again, these three are just examples. I could point out others, but these are, these are ones that I think are, are uh, because they draw on different phenomena, but they're still all related. Um, another one, um, uh, there are a number of what are called cognitive heuristics that uh, uh, psychologists like uh, Daniel Kahneman, his colleague Amos Tversky, and others have uh, studied and documented and studied over the years. These heuristics, they're little shortcuts we use when making decisions and reaching judgments and estimating probabilities. <clears throat> and oftentimes they, they, they serve us well uh, in the moment because rarely do we have access to exact likelihoods and probabilities. We're not good statisticians intuitively, but we need to rely on intuitive statistics a lot of the time. You know, if when this whole pandemic was first hitting, you were you had maybe already purchased uh, uh, tickets to take a trip to Hawaii, uh, and you were now deciding, should I go? And you were trying to estimate, well, what's the likelihood if I do this, that I may wind up catching the virus on the airplane? What's the likelihood that if I decide to risk that, that I might wind up getting stuck in Hawaii? Uh, not that necessarily that'd be a bad thing, but uh, that I might get stuck there for longer than expected because I can't get a flight back. So we're always trying to make these estimates. Um, these different heuristics that we have, in many cases, again, 
give us a rough idea of maybe what to expect based on past experiences, but two, they can lead us astray to the detriment of critical thinking. One of my favorite examples is something called the availability heuristic. Um, and this basically refers to uh, judging the likelihood of an event uh, based on how easy it is to recall past examples of that event. Um, there's, a, there's a psychological logic to that. You would think that the more examples of something you could recall from your life, the more often that it's happened. Uh, two, though, this can lead us astray. So sometimes, depending on my course, I will give students something that I call, like to call the lethal events quiz. Say that again. And I what? would give them, what's that? Say, please say the term again. The lethal events quiz. So what this is, is it's a list of pairs of items, things that do cause deaths each year in the United States. Uh, and when I do this, I will typically have on hand the most recent uh, uh, tallies from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Uh, about how many people each year on average die from these things in our country. But I'll ask students, I'll give them pairs and say, you know, I know you don't know the exact numbers, but I would like you to guess um, which, of these two, which of these two items in each pair do you think actually results in more fatalities each year in our country? Um, so for instance, one of the pairs would be uh, Stomach cancer versus drowning. Which one do you think actually kills more Americans each year on average? If I had to ask you, what would you say? What would I say? Yes. I'd say stomach cancer. And you're right. Um, I've rarely had students get that one right. I would say that 95% of the students pick drowning over stomach cancer. Uh, when I ask them how confident they are, they often I say they're extremely confident. When I say how many times more people, do you think, die of drowning in stomach cancer? The, the estimates typically range somewhere between twice as many to 10 times as many. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, three times as many people die each year in our country from stomach cancer than drowning. Um, many students are baffled by this. They can't believe it. But I hear so many news stories about you know, people drowning in Lake Michigan or children drowning in a neighbor's swimming pool. I never hear stories about somebody drowning or somebody dying of stomach cancer on the news, unless maybe it's somebody famous. And this is one example, again, and, I, and the media is not trying to trick us, but, you know, some stories simply seem more newsworthy, more attention grabbing. And a person, you know, uh, uh, being pulled in an undertow off the pier in Grand Haven, or a child accidentally drowning in a pool tends to be seem more newsworthy than somebody who has been dying over a period of two or three years behind uh, curtains of slow stomach cancer. Um, so this is an example of the availability heuristic leading us astray. Um, where this again fits into more general critical thinking, especially with uh, political issues, is that uh, you know the media can, especially if different outlets to the extent they have biases, <coughs> can tend to play up or play down certain sorts of news stories. And that will tend to either inflate or deflate your estimates, which you tend to think are quite accurate of how often things happen. Um, so for instance, if you are, well, let's just, uh, let's just say that uh, you're liberal and you like, uh, you much prefer watching MSNBC over Fox News, or if you're conservative, maybe prefer Fox News over MSNBC, I think well, things would be likely. Now let's say that there's a news story about, uh, let's say it's an undocumented immigrant who winds up uh, a few days after crossing the border, 
actually helping uh, a, an American family living in Texas uh, escape from survive a flash flood. Um, you can bet that that story is going to be front and center on N MSNBC for maybe a couple of days. Probably it's going to be buried on Fox. If, on the other hand, you have a story just as factually true about an undocumented immigrant who winds up murdering an American couple in Texas, Fox News is going to play that up. It's going to be a headline. It's going to be completely buried or ignored on MSNBC. And as a consequence, depending on the media outlet you look at, your estimates of you know what undocumented immigrants are really like is, is going to be totally swayed in one direction or the other. And that's quite unfortunate, but again, understandable human nature. Um, the third and final one that I'm gonna, and this is, by the way, this is the biggie. Uh, and this is one that I know has come up in some of the events at the Howenstein Center, especially in relationship to the Common Ground initi Initiative. And this is something called, um, the confirmation bias. This is an example of a, a cognitive bias. And the confirmation bias basically refers to our tendency to seek evidence that is consistent with our beliefs, especially our most cherished beliefs, uh, and to basically ignore or avoid any evidence that is contrary to our beliefs. Um, this, in my opinion, again, this is the single biggest obstacle to critical thinking that there is. Um, it affects our attention, our perception, our memory, our reasoning and judgment, basically every aspect of cognition. It also affects our social circles, who we want to hang out with. We want to hang out with people who agree with us. We don't want to hang out on a regular basis with people who disagree with us, um, generally speaking. Uh, it affects the news we watch, uh, because there really aren't any news outlets out there that are truly uh, fair and balanced and unbiased. They're all biased, even though they all claim not to be. Um, it affects that. And it really, when you get right down to it, the confirmation bias is a defense mechanism. Um, not necessarily in the Freudian sense, but for many people, and I think you and I would include ourselves uh, uh, in this set, which is very large, when you ask people, what is it that really makes you you? What is it that makes you different from other people in, in a good and special way? Near the top of people's list, oftentimes, are their most cherished beliefs, whether they are their religious values, their moral values, their political ideologies, what have you. And as a consequence, when we feel those beliefs being at all threatened, it is actually a, a threat to the self. It's a threat to our self-esteem. And so confirmation bias comes into play. And of course, there are a number of different uh, uh, types of confirmation bias. There are probably at least three dozen documented types. Uh, belief perseverance, the tendency, even in the face of, you know, very compelling factual information to keep clinging to your original beliefs and to find ways of discounting those facts. I've, I've told some of my friends, the worst way to try to convince someone that they are wrong is to bombard them with facts. Uh, because not only will they feel so attacked that they'll dig their heels in even more, but to the extent you've told them or you found those facts, they'll begin to treat those sources as valid and as good as they may be, as authoritative as they may be, as completely suspect, that is sources of fake news. <clears throat> Something called the my side bias, that uh, especially when you're talking about probabilistic information, that it may be that the evidence points overwhelmingly in one direction, but if that direction is not one that you like, if you can just come up with one single counterexample, in your mind, that's enough to convince you otherwise. I think the classic example is talking to someone who's been maybe smoking two or three packs of cigarettes 
for decades um, that really, you know, you need to stop smoking. And why? Because the medical research shows that smoking causes lung cancer. And then, of course, if they can just conjure up one old friend of theirs who smoked, uh, chain smoked from the age of 14, died at the age of 95, not from lung cancer, but they were hit by a train, that's enough to convince them uh, that, that this is completely bogus. Um, my side bias, I love this one. Uh, we all fall prey to this one. Um, this is the tendency when you're witnessing two different sides of a debate and you favor one side, disfavor the other. You will be super forgiving of the people on your side. No matter what mistakes they make, you will be hypercritical of people on the other side. Um, just to be uh, completely uh, bipartisan about this, you may recall, uh, and this was, I believe, in 2008 uh, during the uh, stump speeches leading up to that presidential election. Uh, Barack Obama, during one of his stump speeches, mistakenly uh, claimed that he'd visited all 57 states. Uh, do you remember this? Yes. Okay. And oh boy, uh, did uh, the conservative media and many just conservatives in general have a field day with this. And how can the Democrats possibly want to elect a person who is so stupid that they don't even know how many states there are in the country? Um, as many liberals, I think, you know, pointed out, well, this, you know, look, he's been doing this for months on end. He's exhausted. It was a slip of the tongue. What he meant to say was there are 57 states and territories, and he's visited all of them. Um, flash forward now to the numerous tweets that, that our current president puts out, and I don't want to necessarily debate uh, the wisdom behind all of that, um, but we do know that the, uh, uh, not all of these tweets are exactly uh, uh, grammatically correct. Uh, a little more spell checking could have been done in cases. Uh, and when uh, suddenly liberals with the, uh, what was it, coffee? Was that the word that was uh, accidentally invented a couple years ago? Um, saying, you know, how can we elect a president who actually doesn't know how to use the English language? Um, many conservatives point out, look, if you're tweeting that often, there will be mistakes. Uh, I don't tweet that often. I do know, though, uh, the many times that I've uh, uh, engaged in text messaging, something that's not natural to me, but I've had to do more and more of it, uh, given the preferences of my friends and family members. Uh, I make plenty of mistakes, and I would hope that nobody uses those to judge my intelligence. Um, but, uh, but again, depending on who's making the mistakes, uh, we are either willing to be super forgiving or hypercritical. Um, one more example, and then I'll talk about the teaching side of this. Um, illusory correlations. Um, to the extent that we tend to believe that uh, certain things are indeed connected, even if they're not, um, we will see those connections, even if they're completely illusory. So I know that a number of people, not just in our society, and this is not political, by the way, um, believe that there's something about full moons that makes people behave in crazy ways. Um, this is an idea that has absolutely no empirical or scientific merit to it whatsoever, but it's a bit of folk wisdom that's been passed down. This is a different type of wisdom, of course, folk wisdom from generation to generation to generation. You will ask sometimes people who work in emergency rooms or police departments or psychiatric hospitals how they feel about this, and some think that it's bogus, but others will say, oh, I've seen this with my own eyes. When there's a full moon, our patients uh, uh, behave in radically different ways 
or I see more crazy crimes being committed, or we have more crazy accidents coming into the ER. But in studies that have actually looked at these departments and ERs and wards, at the actual incidence of these things that are happening, as it turns out, it's not the case that more of them are happening on the nights of the full moons. It's just that if you believe there's a connection, you're more likely to notice those events and record them in memory if they're consistent with that prior belief. So before you move on, and again, because for some reason I can't see your face anymore, my fault, not yours. Uh, any, any I'm response? still here. Okay, great. Okay, so I'm beginning to feel like this is a lecture, and I really don't want this to turn into a lecture because I like conversations. Um, going back to teaching, um, this course that I've been teaching for the last over just over a decade, a course called Controversial Issues in Psychology, um, one of the mandates, one of the prime course objectives, and this existed uh, before I started teaching it because this course has been on the record since the mid 80s at GVSU in the psychology department. As you can bet, uh, teaching students to think critically has always been one of the prime directives here. Um, when I started teaching it, I first made the mistake of thinking that critical thinking was indeed a set of skills that I could teach. I rapidly had to uh, learn just how wrong that was. And again, uh, figure out on my own the critical thinking, like wisdom more generally, uh, is based more on attitudes and mindsets and values and awareness, basically, of how the human mind naturally works, not just abstract skills. Um, I also very quickly recognized that you can think that you've taught students to think critically about a range of different issues, and they can seem to exhibit that quite naturally. Be aware of the effects of automatic processing and the availability heuristic and confirmation bias in its various guises to the extent that the controversies you give them are relatively canned, so to speak. That is, yes, these are debatable issues, um, but they don't necessarily tap into students' most cherished values, especially the ones that are part of their own personal identities. That is, when I first started teaching it, I would get into topics like, for instance, was, uh, were Stanley Milgram's uh, experiments on obedience to authority and which subjects were brought into a building and made to believe that they were increasingly uh, uh, giving increasingly uh, dangerous shocks to another subject in a learning experiment that wasn't really happening, but they were led to believe that, was this study indeed unethical? Or uh, if you're going into clinical or counseling psychology, should licensed psychologists be allowed to try out therapies that are not empirically supported? That is, they are not evidence-based. Should they be allowed to rely on intuition? Um, these are important debates. They are interesting ones. And they do encourage a certain level of critical thinking. But what I more recently found over the last five years is that no matter how well students seem to have learned critical thinking in relation to relatively safe debates, the moment you put something in front of them that actually does tap into some of their more profound political or religious or moral values, that is, again, it's tied really to their self-identity, all of these lessons completely go flying out the window and they forget about the effects of automatic processing and their reasoning becomes immediately emotional. And they forget about how their preferred media sources, what they listen to, what they read, 
might be influencing their estimates and they fall prey to all sorts of versions of confirmation bias. An example of a more heated topic like that would be, should implicit bias training be mandatory for all police officers in our society? Um, once you move to something like that, it almost becomes the case that students need to relearn these lessons all over again. And that's when things get really interesting. Um, as you can imagine, when you start talking about issues like that in a class and encouraging debate, um, this can make people very uncomfortable very quickly. And that can go in a number of different directions if you're not prepared. You can either wind up with a free-for-all firestorm um, between the students, or you can wind up with a completely silent and anxious classroom. And so to get back to a question I think you asked me 20 minutes ago, um, what do I do to try to set the stage for these more profound sorts of challenges and debates um, that really I think are necessary to actually teach critical thinking and therefore, again, wisdom. Um, the first thing, and this is not easy always, but over a period of a couple of weeks it can be done, is to establish a shared sense of empathy and curiosity and trust between the students. And sometimes really that's almost all you should be doing before you get into this. Um, Gleaves, when, when you and I and other members of the Howenstein Center team met uh, way back in January, I think for the first time to talk about some of the, our shared goals and values and how we're teaching and, and uh, different things or uh, organizing different events in our respective venues. Uh, you had mentioned uh, an activity by uh, Robert Quinn with those three questions. Uh, uh, do you mind reiterating those? Well, Bob Quinn came in and taught our Leadership Academy fellows how to get at the core story. So if you, if you have people that you sense are going to differ with one another in their opinions, their worldview, you know, a number of ways that they see life, pair them off, and of course, both of them are looking at each other very skeptically. But if you can get them to tell them something you said earlier, what makes them unique? What is their core story about who they are? And it's amazing after three rounds of that, and these are short, these are short exchanges, minute, minute and a half. After three exchanges, rounds of exchange, it's amazing how many people suddenly say, oh, I had a similar experience to that. They all of a sudden find lines of convergence. And then you go from there to being able to introduce their view of their values. And then you go from there to actual issues that have to be thrashed out in neighborhoods and communities and countries. Bob yeah, Quinn's is great at that. And, and, and I had not, you know, I'd heard of, of Bob Quinn before. Uh, he's a professor emeritus at, at uh, where I got my undergraduate degree, that's University of Michigan. Uh, I never encountered that particular activity. I tracked it down within 24 hours of that meeting and I loved it. And I'm probably going to try something on those lines in one of my classes. One that I've been doing is something that's uh, called the, uh, uh, often it's called the stereotype activity. And I borrowed this from a, uh, a group called Essential Partners. They used to be called the Public Conversations Project. But it basically involves people, uh, before getting going in some more difficult conversations, writing down, generating a list of three to five stereotypes that they're often worried about other people forming about them or that people have formed about them that in many cases make them especially wary. 
to share parts of their identity or to share certain opinions because they don't want to promote these stereotypes. Um, and then the students are asked to talk about one or two of them, um, either with maybe uh, two or three partners or maybe with the rest of the class to start some conversations or maybe just to listen. Um, and uh, to also talk about which of these stereotypes do they find to be just completely wrong, which of them do they maybe find even understandable, perhaps even true. Sometimes stereotypes can be true, but still frustrating. <laughs> and it's really interesting the, as various students from different backgrounds share their stereotypes. So you'll have, uh, I'll have a, uh, a young African-American woman who says, you know what, I know we're gonna be talking about controversial issues. And I know that a lot of us will get worked up, but I'm especially worried about appearing to get worked up uh, when we're talking about X, Y, or Z, because uh, even though maybe other people can do that, I don't want to wind up promoting the stereotype of the angry black woman. Um, and then I'll have a young white male who says, you know what, um, I am a uh, uh, heterosexual male who's a member of a fraternity here, uh, and I really worry if we get into certain topics that I'm, people might automatically start treating me as just a potential sexual predator because that's the stereotype of frat boys and on and on it goes and these lead to some fascinating uh conversations and and some of them are easier to have and some of them wind up being very difficult uh but the students begin to really ask some questions and they begin to trust one another better but first establishing a sense of community um next of course establishing a set of ground rules for the conversations once we've done that because there are all sorts of things that you want students to do when engaging in conversations, other things you don't want. You don't want them asking non-genuine questions. You don't want them asking sarcastic rhetorical questions, for instance. You don't want them uh, promoting generalities and saying, well, of course you'd say that you're a member of group X. Um, you want to have people uh, feel free to continue saying what they're saying without interruption and and uh, say uh, you can say what you want to say But it could you please hold off until I finish talking about this? Um, and so on and so forth and going through those ground rules and having some practice is important um, Establishing right from the get-go uh, Demonstrating a sense of fairness. So for instance if I have a class and some of the issues we're going to be debating uh, get political they get into political ideologies and let's say I know ahead of time is I'll do surveys, that two thirds of my students lean liberal and one third lead conservative. Um, to a certain extent, I'm probably gonna try to make sure that two thirds of the time when I am debating topics, uh, I seem to be attacking more the liberal perspective, but one third of the time the conservative perspective. So that uh, everybody you know, basically uh, uh, gets their fair share. And finally, uh, I try to allow, never allow conversations to devolve into collective judgment against one or two students because I'm encouraging them. Please, even if you suspect that what you're gonna say might not be the attitude that I have or that it might rub other students the wrong way or that maybe it's deemed politically incorrect by whatever powers that be, you know, please share it so long as again, you're sharing it from a perspective of, of this is wh why you feel this way based on your lived experiences. If a student ever, and this doesn't happen every time I teach this class, but occasionally it does, a student will share something and some other students find it inflammatory and start ganging up on them. In a couple of cases, I've had the first student driven to silence and maybe even to tears. And even if I don't share that student's perspective, what I find is that 
I may need to step in and take that student side and try to speak for them in a very rational way. So uh, do you mind if I give an example? I don't know how we're doing on time. Give this example and then we're gonna let our viewers who've been asking questions come into our conversation. <laughs> so go ahead, give, give the example. So um, this was maybe a couple of years ago and we were talking about, uh, this is in a different psychology class, uh, as one of my psychology capstone courses. Um, we were talking uh, about different family structures, uh, different types of marriage and child rearing arrangements and comparing across individualistic societies and collectivist societies. And then we began getting into some of the moral and political ramifications of different views. And I had encouraged different students to share their perspectives on these things. And the topic of uh, gay marriage came out. And uh, not surprisingly, again, a fairly liberal uh, a group of students by and large um, were voicing their uh, um, appreciation for the direction our society was moving in, especially since the 2013 Supreme Court ruling. Uh, but one conservative student uh, decided to voice her opinion and said, look, I know some of you are gonna think that this means I'm homophobic, I guarantee you I'm not. She goes, I'm fully in favor of gay rights, I'm fully in favor of civil unions. Uh, but I just think, based on my religious views, that you know, marriage is different, it's a different category, and it really is between one man and one woman. Uh, I can't tell you how quickly the entire class turned against her. Um, and in a very angry, vitriolic way. Um, and she was quite shaken because I think she'd been working up getting the courage, being one of the lone conservatives to actually say something. Uh, throughout the last several weeks, she finally did and was attacked um, and couldn't say anything else. Uh, she was very visibly shaken. And I said, do you mind if I try to speak for you? Um, even if maybe we don't see eye to eye on all this. And she gave me the nod. And I said, look, you know, for you, um, marriage has a particular definition. Uh, what we're talking about is a semantic issue. And for you, based on your values, that's the semantics of it mean one male and one female. So you're not opposed, again, to a, a loving, romantic, long-term relationship, a monogamous one that is actually recognized by the government, that is sanctified in some way, and that results in benefits, and, and so on and so forth. But this is a special category. The students still weren't having it, so I had to quickly come up with a counterexample. And I, just off the top of my head, I said, well, let's just say that we had a weird situation uh, where uh, my wife and I, we decided to adopt uh, a couple of people who were uh, 30 years older than we were. Uh, how comfortable would you be, be with us calling them our children? And of course, this flummoxed the class. And they said, well, they can't be children because to be a child, you have to be a minor. You can't be, you know, 60 or 70 years old and, and be called children, even if you've adopted them, however that would work. And I said, well, even though I'm, you know, over 50 years old, aren't I still the child of my parents? Okay, well, you can still be children. I said, well, so given that, couldn't we adopt people who are 20 years older than we are and call them our children? They still didn't like this. And they said, no, because, you know, you can't have children who are older than you are. And I said, but why? If we've adopted them, if that were allowed, What's the problem? And it turned out it was really a semantic issue. Uh, I said, well, what if we redefined things? And it had nothing to do with relative age, being a child. It had more to do with the nature of the relationship between the dependents and the caregivers. Uh, and they began to see how maybe this might work, but it did calm things down quite a bit. Um, as you can bet, I, I tend to get very Socratic 
uh, in these classes, sometimes by playing devil's advocate, sometimes simply by playing dumb so I can keep exposing like layers of an onion, getting down to the core assumptions of students and really testing those. But what I've always found is that it's, it's very gratifying by the end of these courses to see finally students, even with very personally challenging issues, start to get Socratic with other members of the class with no assist from me and even with themselves, second guessing themselves. We of course even haven't gotten into the uh, issues of teaching political wisdom, which would be fun to talk about. Uh, I understand that we do need to maybe move on at this point. I would just say that aporia is one of those Socratic terms that I really cherish because it, it's this Greek word that assumes doubt, uh, a healthy skepticism, not a cynical skepticism, right. as you pointed out earlier. And aporia is an important part of our conversations. We do need to be questioning and, and make sure that we understand exactly what the other person is saying and questioning ourselves in that process too. Socrates is one of my heroes. Socrates is portrayed by Plato. So I, as you were talking, Brian, I imagined all the times that you must be very Socratic and, and invoke our muse in the, uh, in the classroom. We've got some questions. Let's go to the questions now. We have Jason Duncan, a friend of ours, and uh, he said that he loved the example from Flint. He asked the question, how relevant to today's situation do you think that Martin Luther King's ethics and philosophy are? Thank you, Jason. Good question. How relevant? That's a great question. Um, one thing to note, of course, is that, is that Martin Luther King's philosophy is a lot more complex, multifaceted, and nuanced than oftentimes many people understand. Uh, and, uh, you know, we know his I Have a Dream speech, we know a number of his other uh, expressions and, and great works, but, but uh, I suspect that for every person who, who loves the uh, bits that make the history books, they might be personally challenged by some of the other things that he says. Um, one thing, though, Moving to, I think, some of the uh, 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 less controversial, but just as inspiring and important parts of MLK Jr.'s message is his emphasis on what we might call uh, common identity politics. Um, so we're having a growing number uh, of debates about what we sometimes call identity politics. And this gets very, very tricky very quickly because on the one hand, um, I truly understand that different groups of individuals who have historically been marginalized, um, oppressed, uh, 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 really, truly victimized, um, they need to find a collective voice and a collective identity uh, in order to achieve the sort of solidarity and, and power uh, to, uh, to stand up to the forces that be uh, and achieve some of the justice that they, they deserve. What worries me is when this is done at the expense of losing sight of the larger collective, um, that it is very, very important that yes, uh, different groups have shared identities that they can rally around. But if this is done at the expense of this more common sense that we're all in this together as Americans, um, that you know, you're working for this, I'm working for that, we're all working to achieve our own goals individually or in uh, our different racial or ethnic or religious groups, 
but ultimately we're all in this together. Uh, and to the extent that we're framing these debates and we're engaging activities to promote justice that wind up actually creating hatred um, uh, against other groups, um, even though that hatred may indeed be fully understandable, at least in the moment, it is historically understandable. Um, I think we're all in trouble. <clears throat> you know, this, uh, this gets back, I think, in, in some more general ways to the, uh, the debate between what type of society are we aiming for? Should the melting pot be our metaphor, or are we aiming for sort of a multicultural tossed salad, uh, another super salad, basically? You know, I, I can't choose in some ways, but, but that's the basic distinction here. Both of these metaphors have their pros and cons, and I, I do think the truth is going to ultimately lie somewhere in between. But MLK did realize that, that you need to draw a larger circle that as hard as you're fighting, and even though at a certain point fingers do need to be pointed, that ultimately our circle of justice and compassion needs to be drawn to include those that we need to convince to change. Very good. Candace Cowling asks, when you talk about looking at both sides of the issue, oftentimes there are more than two sides, there are multiple sides of an issue, and how do you get folks to move beyond, say, a, a limited binary way of looking at issues. Thank you, Candace. <laughs> oh, no, that, that is a, that's another great issue. It's, it's easiest to talk about how to do these things uh, using binary contrast, whether it's you know, pro-life versus pro-choice, whether it's you know, uh, Democrats versus Republicans. Uh, again, um, you know, not only is it the case that, that oftentimes we shouldn't think about these as being black or white contrast, but rather there are whole lots of shades of gray. But really, in many cases, there's more than one dimension cutting through these things. Um, so for instance, uh, uh, the uh, researcher, sci fellow psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, you're very familiar with him. He actually uh, has joined your, uh, 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 gave a presentation, a Howenstein presentation uh, a few years back. Um, he has argued that when really thinking about American politics and political ideologies, um, simply thinking about liberals versus Democrats, uh, uh, conservatives versus uh, uh, progressives is woefully inadequate. Yes, this is an important dimension, but again, it's shaded. Um, but there are other groups, and sometimes these, these uh, contrasts are orthogonal. Sometimes they're actually independent categories. So where do libertarians fall, for instance? Um, it's always interesting when we get into some debates that uh, do seem to typically play out along uh, uh, liberal versus conservative. And then I'll say, are there any libertarians in the class? Uh, and oftentimes there are one or two. Um, for some reason, and I've still got to figure it out, the libertarians are usually the ones that enjoy debates the most. I don't know why. I do appreciate that, even if I don't always agree with everything that's said. Um, but that's a contrast. Um, the fact that oftentimes people assume that uh, faith and religion go hand in hand with how conservative or how liberal you are. So we oftentimes hear about secular liberals versus social religious conservatives. But as uh, Jonathan I just pointed out, well, there's also the religious left um, that are very- well, they, 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 they don't know Cornell West. <laughs> right, <laughs> and there's that, and, and, and he too. Uh, has been uh, a guest at the Howenstein Center. But that's another contrast that, 
That's another set of positions that get lost in a lot of these debates. And so I, I do try to bring these up. Um, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, to really explore every facet um, that, that uh, uh, represents more than just two or three people in our society, we could spend an entire semester on just one issue. Uh, but you are absolutely right. Uh, we can't oversimplify these things in so many cases. It is not simply one clearly defined side versus the other. Oh, true. Another viewer asks, do you have any thoughts on how we might be able to approach building common ground, building bridges with others who hold different opinions that might not be even open to such activities as building a bridge to the other side? I have a number of family members who reject the experiences of others and feel even being open to hearing about experiences that conflict with their opinions is threatening to their beliefs. So how do we navigate common ground with other parties? People are close to you that have no interest in pursuing it. Thank you for a, a that's a tough, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. If we knew the answer to that, Gleaves, uh, 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 you know, we might both be thinking about early retirement at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or certainly uh, uh, hoping that somebody would put us up for a Nobel Prize of some sort. Um, that is challenging. Um, I don't think that it's insurmountable. I do think that with some individuals, it's easier to accomplish this than with others. Uh, we've all had experiences along those lines. And unfortunately, um, some of the personality traits that people have, that would vary from one person to the next to the next, can wind up being impediment in personality traits, which are the major ones, uh, which are, according to the best research, about 50% heritable. These things uh, can, can wind up being obstacles uh, in some cases. Uh, I, I wouldn't give up hope. Um, I think I've already said a couple of things that maybe would be helpful. Um, I have found two or three things that have been useful because I've been in this situation with uh, immediate family members, with in-laws, with neighbors, and so on and so forth. Um, again, I think that to the extent that you don't start off in attack mode um, is one important thing, that, that you start by actually listening to them. Never start with your own opinion, I think. Start by asking them, e even when you know, or especially when you know, that their perspective is different from yours ask with a genuine sense of curiosity um, to the extent that their shared their unique lived experience that generated this if you can connect with any of that even if your conclusions wound up being different if you can empathize and say wow you know i think i understand exactly what you mean run with that um if um when you start putting forth your views don't do it in a confrontational way. Do it in a very humble way. Um, always, I don't care whether you're talking about Aristotle or Alan Alda, there's a lot of truth to the expression that a conversation is not a true conversation unless you go into it willing to have your mind changed as well. Um, that's hard to accomplish too, but if you go into it with an attitude of uh, humility rather than defensiveness or arrogance, that can be a really good thing. With some people, this may seem flippant, but with some people I found that uh, having something on the lines of a beer summit, the beer can make a difference sometimes. Uh, that's not, uh, yeah, that's obviously not, you know, the medicine that everyone needs. Um, it's, it's such a great set of questions, uh, how to really accomplish this. I will say this, 
um, that one thing that we, we do need to work to achieve is undermining the echo chambers, the bubbles that keep growing on social media and various digital platforms. Um, digital media is here to stay. Uh, and even though there are, there are things about it that truly worry me and I think are leading us in the wrong direction, and we've seen Facebook actually wind up being a platform for tearing families apart, um, I think that uh, there are some positive things. I mean, ideally, it could connect us all to people that ne we never would have talked to before. Um, the, uh, this Lunch and Learn series, I think, is, is one example of a way that we can use uh, digital media, social media, uh, to actually overcome some of the negative aspects uh, that we've seen these sorts of platforms encourage in the past. We need to get very creative, and not just because we're living in the times of COVID-19, which hopefully won't be with us much longer. I don't think, by the way, I've, I've done a very good job of answering that, uh, that last question because it is challenging. And I find it challenging too, Brian. I mean, I think that all of us who work in this field, we in the Common Ground Initiative, you as our partner in that initiative, all of us struggle with that because people do get so emotional. They do have searing experiences. In fact, when you were talking about the obstacles, one of the obstacles I've discovered is PTSD. People who have PTS, post-traumatic stress, whether it's from war or rape or whatever the experience, you know, when we're talking to them, if we know something about their, their background, we can't expect to change their mind or try to persuade. Sometimes we just have to listen, and that's okay. Maybe that's the most compassionate, best way to communicate with them. It well, thank you. thank you, Professor Brian Bowden, for being my guest on today's Lunch and Learn. Viewers can see why we at the Hallenstein Center have so enjoyed working with you. I would invite those who've tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you think of today's program. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time on Thursday, June 4th, when my guest will be Cameron Jones. Cam is a recent political science and international relations graduate from GVSU, and also, impressively, he was a 2019 Truman Scholarship finalist in recognition of his academic achievement and commitment to public service. A recent graduate of our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, Cam will join me to discuss his work on political campaigns and reflect on leadership in our troubled times. Till Tuesday, stay tuned to all our offerings at the Hallenstein Center and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hallenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hallenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hallenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hallenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.